Hi everyone, I'm Frank Keith, and welcome back to Music Rookie. This week on the podcast, I'll be speaking with David Macias, president and founder of 30 Tigers, who, if you're not already familiar, is a well-established record label based in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll link to their website for you so you can check them out, but I'm pretty certain that you're going to be more than familiar with a handful of their artists already. We'll touch on the genesis of 30 Tigers, what their business model looks like, what their current deal structure looks like, and then some general advice for planning your own release if you're not going to be working with a label. David was also recently quoted in Rolling Stone talking about the current status of the streaming economy and Spotify specifically, since that's a hot-button topical issue right now. And we'll talk about that towards the end of this podcast. If you want to skip the 30 Tigers history label deal stuff, although I don't necessarily condone skipping the information up front, you can jump to around the 22-minute mark. And with that, I'll hand it over to David. Okay, let's just start off talking about 30 Tigers, the genesis of the label. Uh, I know it was just you in a room at one point mm-hmm. in time and walk me towards that initial business model and how that sure. may have changed over the years and what it looks like today. Yeah. And first of all, <clears throat> in, in fairness to my co-founder, Deb Markland, who I started the company with, it was me and my bed- guest bedroom, her guest bedroom. And, and although she remains a dear friend and an honored, has an honored place in our company's history, she, after a few years, dipped out to focus on the, her family, her growing family. And both of us were refugees from the major label. As I <clears throat> like to say, I, I used to work for the majors, but they invited me to explore my destiny elsewhere. Honestly, when the company started, it, it, it definitely was not it definitely was not what it is now. The, it, only in the m- most broad sense did we have the same sort of mission. And rather than probably the insight that I'm, you know, proudest of having in in the beginning was that rather than just try to get one label to hire me or us, Deb and I as a team, what we should do is to rather than have somebody pay pay me a hundred thousand dollars a year, I'd rather get ten people to hire me for $10,000 a year because all of these companies were individual artists or startups that were only going to put out one or two records. So if they were paying me a salary like that, then my very presence would be a huge inefficiency. I would be a financial albatross, you know, around their neck. So we started a company to basically serve all of these these startups and individual artists who were as the great downsizing was beginning were cast out. And and I, and, and then we wound up getting hired quite quite a bit and then about a year into that, we got approached by Red Distribution, who is now The Orchard, and they said, hey, we love the work that you guys do. You guys help really prepare our sales reps for going into make the sale, and so we want you to bring everything through us. And and what, what they had proposed was not necessarily what we do now, but it was that we, we wound up doing. But the thing that I realized at the time, and so I went back to them with was like, okay, look, I'll, I'd love to do this. Basically, I was talking to any of the distribution you know companies that our clients were working with. And so, <clears throat> so I, I said to them, like, look, I'll bring everything t- to you. But what I want to do is 
rather than I just tee things up for you and you sign the deal. I want to sign a deal with you and then I will sign the people because at that time, this was 2001, it was 2002 at that time. And so this was a year before iTunes launched or anything like that. So if you didn't have physical distribution, you were just dead in the water. And it was a very existentially uh, important issue. And so what I wanted to do was to basically have the power to bestow distribution on clients. And, and the model that we set up was rather than, rather than just charge them a monthly fee or anything like that, we became a, a small stakeholder, but we would you know, work for a, ba- a back-end portion of the proceeds with the, one of the reasons being that if things really worked, we'd earn significantly more money than if we just charged a monthly retainer for four months. The other part was that in terms of startup costs, if we weren't getting paid a monthly retainer, then we would, then that could allow them to hire a better publicist because the capital they had to invest was going towards more productive things. It might help them hire a radio promotion person <clears throat> that their uh, available capital on hand wouldn't allow them to do it. So it wound up being a win for everybody. And, and then from that point, we started distributing through them and it just slowly but surely through the years, we would bring on additional clients and then we'd grow and then we'd hire another person or two and then we'd grow. And and also artists can come and go as they want. They could be free if the greener pastures, so they get a label deal or something like that. They're free to go. So, and so by design, we had to grow very slowly and organically through the years. And that's, so that's what we've done. Every single year, our revenues have gone up. The 20 year, 20, we've been in the distribution business 20 of our 21 years. And every single year we've had, we've had, our sales have grown. So we've been on a a steady um, incline and it's been great. And artists, they get to still get to keep ownership of their work. And through the years, as we've grown and grown, we've been able to populate the company with a, a really incredibly good staff, in my opinion. And there's no diminution of the quality of effort, but marketing compared to a more traditional label. In fact, I'm a little biased, but I think we're even better than you know a lot of the labels in terms of being marketing advocates and and all that for, on behalf of our artists. But that's more or less the the thirty tiger story. We do try to, in terms of the you know artists that we bring in, there's definitely a philosophy of of the artists that we wind up working with and bringing in. And and we've through the years, I mean, one thing about being in business for a long time is you you make a lot of mistakes that you can learn from. So through the years, we've developed a certain philosophy about how to take music to the market and have become really eager students of the economics of it all so that we can give sage advice to our to our artists. And sometimes things don't don't work as well as we you know like them to, but we, we always, anything that we put out, we believe in 100% and we're honored to go fight on behalf of that artist. And I think we, we bring, I think we bring quite a bit of value. Talk to me about A&R. Um, how many, how many releases are you guys dropping in any given year? Obviously, <laughs> the last couple of years may be a bad example. We put out about fifty records a year, and that's and that's held steady through the pandemic. Although there was a lot of shifting around, because certain artists were they had different philosophies about it. It was more like some of them were like, "We need to, you know, push our record back so that we can tour." How do you how do you scout artists, vet artists? What makes the Thirty Tigers artist for you? I think for most of them, because most of the artists that we sign are, are more 
press driven than anything. There, there are some commercial country acts that we work with where the idea of every artist, even commercial artists have narrative. Like Kenny Chesney is a great example. Kenny Chesney, I believe that guy, he loves to be on the beach drinking rum with his friends. I, I think that's who he really is. And he sings about it a lot. So there's like a, it's a very J- Jimmy Buffett-esque narrative around him, but commercial acts can have, can have narrative. But I think that for more press driven acts, where you're really dependent on the journalists of America to tell that story. If you want Morning Edition to do a piece about your artist, they're going to have to talk about them for six minutes. And that producer is going to have to feel like there's a compelling story to tell. And if we don't understand the story or that we think, and sometimes we think that the journalists will want to tell a particular story and they have no interest as it turns out, but we always (laughs) feel like that there's a, a story behind that artist. And what, we, and what we try to do is bring the sort of the gap between the artist and their work. We try to narrow it as much as we can. So try to almost like the sort of like with Greek drama, character is destiny. Who is this artist? Who is this human being? And what have they experienced or what have they seen in the world that moves them so that they that they are that how that sort of flows out of them in our through artistic expression seems inevitable because then you have this sense that the you've got an authentic artist. And we try to really understand uh you know, what that story is and that do do we feel like we know how to navigate those mediums in order to build enough of an audience to do it. And then we try to be super organized around it by the knowledge that if you're going to convey a story about an artist or, or how, however that comes to be, that you're going to have to compress those stories within a, a condensed time frame so that you get this sense of ubiquity. It takes a lot of pre-planning because you're going to want the artist touring in appropriate markets. And that takes months and months in advance to plan that out with the agent. Also, weighing in, a factor that weighs in there is who is this artist's agent? Do we have faith that they're going to be able to do the do the work that they need to do to get that artist in to specific markets. Luckily, I've done this for a long time. I started in retail when I was record retail when I was 15 and I've never done anything else. I like to say that either shows a real love of music or or a real lack of imagination. I'm not sure which, but but I've done this for a long time and you just after a while you just get a sense that okay, I know how to tell the story. I know how to organize this campaign. And when we do that, and I, I share A&R responsibilities with a woman named Lee Danae up in New York, who's a real classic A&R type of person and knows producers and knows she's, she's you know, connected with artists and attorneys and stuff like that. And my background, I, I sold Alan Jackson records to Walmart. So I had to learn how to be a, a decent A&R person. Lee, Lee and I are sharing those responsibilities. And, and we have a couple other people in the company. And we hear a lot of good music that have been like, okay, well, this is you know really good, but it's, we just don't know quite how to tell that story. And we're not serving artists well if we take something on and we're kind of like, well, we'll figure it out. You don't want to fuck people's shit up. And, and it's not—it's no way to, to grow a reputation. And we had to learn through growing that just when it was, that it was, it's actually a gift to an artist not to say yes and bring them in and fuck their shit up. So sometimes we'll have the passion and the vision and then sometimes we, we won't. So that's our A&R philosophy, yes. It's a fair one. I, I, totally, yeah. I totally get it. You leaned into it. So let's just go right there. Sure. Talk about deal structure. Is it the same across the board or you work case by case kind of thing? It's largely the same across the board. And I'd say the vast majority of the of our clients are artists. We do have a, a small handful of labels 
hmm. that we that we serve. They're our clients, and whatever their contractual relationship with their artists, we don't really know, and it's not really our business. But we're there to serve both the label and artist to just do the best job that we can. I tend to shy away from labels because if we turn the the decision making about the art that comes through our doors over to somebody else and half of the stuff they re- we're really passionate about and half of it are like why are they like we don't get that at all then all of a sudden we're spending a lot of time it just it doesn't it actually doesn't serve the label or the artists and so I, I, I tend to be very judicious about that but I'd say 80% of what we put out is just is direct with the artist forms their own label and the basic deal structure, is that the artists keep ownership of their work from day one. They own it outright. We don't license it. We don't own it. And they earn about 75% of the gross revenues that come through the distribution channel. And then the remaining 25, we share with the orchard. So we're working for about 10 to 12% of the gross uh, revenues now. Any expenses that come, and we're pretty we're pretty competitive when it comes to advances, even though we don't own the work. But we will provide artists advances, and and it's up to Lee and I to make sure that we're not that we're judging the risk accurately because we work on such thin margins. So just say the roughly ten percent that we earn. Our goal is to is to spend seven percent of that on overhead. So our goal is a ten percent gross margin and a three percent net margin. So of the 75% that the artist gets, any advances that we give them, any money that we spend on their behalf, which they have to approve, by the way, we can't just be like, oh, we didn't tell you about that $5,000 Facebook ad campaign. Ah, shit. At any rate, it's on your statement. Sorry. Like we have to get all that stuff approved ahead of time to spend on their behalf. For all important things, the artist as the owner of their intellectual property asset and the owner of their business gets to make the decisions. Now they'll lean on us for our advice and most of them follow that advice and we're we plan a lot of that stuff we'll do profit loss statements on almost everything that comes out so that the artist knows ahead of time okay if we're going to spend this much they get to understand in the context of everything that's going on how it affects the bottom line the more informed our artists can be transparency and and proper consultation but in addition to that 75% minus expenses and advances and things like that they also keep 100% of what they sell on the road. They keep 100% of master use licenses. So if they get a, a song used in a film or TV, we don't share in that at all. On For performance royalty, the digital realm of sound exchange money, they keep both the artist and the label side. We don't get any of the sound exchange money. And when you add up all that ancillary revenue and 75% of the gross minus expenses, then if things work and we do our job well, and the artist is successful, then it can be a very remunerative situation for the artist. And once the artist is successful and they have money coming in and they have control and we don't, and also we don't like, we don't tell them like, who am I to tell Jason Isbell or Lucinda Williams what they should be doing in the studio? That's preposterous. And we tend to gravitate towards fully formed artists. And our our baseline assumption is that the artist is the artist and we trust their creative vision or we wouldn't be signing them in the first place. But the end result of all of the, of the, much larger size of the revenues through the distribution channels and all the ancillary revenues makes it a pretty compelling situation, assuming that we have a shared vision about how to go to market. And even though we're making like a 3% net margin, hopefully it's a little more, that's like the the least that we want to do. It's usually a, a little higher than that. What about a first release artist? I noticed you've got some people with artist development 
in their job title. What does that mm -hmm. look like for you guys taking someone that's maybe not totally from scratch kind of thing? Sure. Or... I, I, I will give an example of somebody. We're signing this artist named Drayton Farley. He's from Alabaster, Alabama, and he's a really great singer-songwriter. I learned about him through a podcaster friend of mine from West Virginia who He's found out about a lot of important, pretty important artists before anybody else did. And I listened to him when he tells me I should pay attention. And he brought this guy Drayton, you know, to my attention. And I and I was listening to his his music, and I just I love him. But he, he Drayton didn't have he had no infrastructure around him. He just the album that he made that's up on Spotify right now is, is which is really great. He just did on his own and put up there and just got out there. And he he was working at a, he had a job working at a railroad, but just on weekends and everything he'd go and do his thing but he had no infrastructure around him at all but we somebody's always got to be the, the first there and when I think about artist development like I, I think about like with with Drayton because we're I think a trusted source for a lot of people we were able to go and introduce him to the person that became his manager eventually who is a, a an incredibly good manager who manages like Ryan Bingham, for instance. Through through that relationship and, and also ours, he wound up getting on the radar of CAA, who is booking him now. So we're pulling all of these elements together and people, it's the quality of his work, first and foremost, that is driving it. But our advocacy, and sometimes when people like they know that we're behind it. Or if I know that somebody else is behind it, if they're like, man, I like, I'm on fire about this. I think it's great. I want you to hear it. And then it's just, it helps the vision click in a little bit. Like, okay, at least I know they've got a great agent. At least I know they've got this. And, and then when you hear the music and the tumblers start to fall into place. To me, when I think about artist development, it's especially for new acts, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, like building a, a, a community around that artist. And sometimes we're the first to get there. Sometimes we're the second or third or something around that artist. But the basic principles, like I'm super confident that Drayton Farley is going to be a big deal. Like I think he's going to be an artist that is, is going to be very successful. And as do uh, a lot of other people, it's sometimes when it's people like that, you've just got to go knock on people's door. But it is important that a holistic community be around that artist because if an artist can't go out and tour because they don't have an agent, that is going to be a really tough thing to overcome. Concerts are, that's like church. You're like, that's where the intimate, the most intimate connection with your fans are going to take place. And if you can't get out there, that's an almost impossible thing to overcome. I mean, there's certain types of music, obviously, that don't depend as much on live touring, but for somebody in the Americana, singer-songwriter, type vein that's it's essential let's talk about the uncool side of that in the you know it's it's 2022 now um yep. social media is a thing digital marketing yep. is a thing yep. uh, pulling the scope away from 30 tigers and let's just talk a cohesive release plan mm -hmm. if i'm an independent artist and i'm like okay i'm gonna hire a radio promoter i'm gonna hire a publicist i already have a booking agent we'll figure out distribution maybe a label services mm -hmm. situation taking it to social media marketing you mentioned a five thousand dollar facebook ad spend earlier i'm sure those budgets vary wildly i know and, and believe me I, I was thinking about some of our bigger artists when i was thinking about that not, not our, our baby acts and believe me we try to be very thoughtful and frugal about the artist money. That's part of our mission to serve the artists. I tell my staff, like, we did not make this music. We do not own this music. We are here strictly in a capacity to serve. And being good stewards of their financial resources, even if we front them, 
it's going to come out of their back end. If we do stupid shit and waste $5,000 on an ad campaign that should that should be $1,000 because that's what's appropriate, then, then we haven't served the artists. I think the, the thing that I would say to artists, the thing to keep in mind is when you're trying to plan uh, something is that it's the same principle that we work on under. You have to aggregate impressions within a fixed period of time, however that happens. If it's hiring a PR person, making sure if you're going to have a release date in August, make sure that you've, you've, you've talked to your PR person, you've identified them and hired them by February or March because you guys book out pretty far in advance because you need to have the proper setup time and all that kind of stuff. So if you finish a record and you're just kind of like, I just want it out and you don't give the people around you that you've brought on ample time to do their jobs properly, it's not going to go well. I'd say that there's a, there's a rule of, of thumb in marketing that, you know, that David Ogilvy was the head of Ogilvy and Mather, Mather Advertising, who's like the dean of modern advertising, but he used to make the case that before anybody was aware of what you were conveying to them, it took seven impressions. And you can think about it anecdotally through your own consumption. The last time there was a movie that you wanted to go see or a book that you wanted to buy, it wasn't like the first time that you heard about it, likely that you were like, oh, I got to check that out. And that's the way it is with musicians. That's the way it is with artists. And so you have to be methodical. You have to plan ahead. If you're going to plan a tour to be in your key markets in, say, that hypothetical August tour date, if you book yourself, you've got to get way out in, in front. Those venues book out pretty far in advance. And so you, you've got to really think about what you're doing and have all of the different mediums that are, that are going to play a role in the seven impressions. And, and it's not hard and fast. If something's really sticky and, and people are freaking out about it, it may take three or four. But just as a general principle, the idea is aggregating a sufficient number of impressions so that you rise above the din of noise out there, because there's a lot of noise out there. So... <laughs> it's very tough to break through these days. And so that that would be my advice is to not just wing it. Don't let anybody tell you like, oh, we should just run and gun and do this or whatever. You have to really think about this and be very methodical. If you give yourself six months in advance to give you guys the opportunity to do what you do and give the booking agent an opportunity to do what they do and plan all the ways that you're going to bring enough impressions through whatever mediums are relevant to that type of music. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I, I totally agree and appreciate the insight. I'm looking at my show notes here. We're down to streaming economy. I know you're going to, I'll probably point to it if, if you're going to have a byline in Rolling Stone. So I guess you could just give us the Cliff's notes. I don't know because Jonathan Bernstein's actually writing it. How this came about was I was having spirited discussion this weekend on Twitter for people that were, I felt maybe not looking at the streaming environment through the proper lenses. And, and I think people in good faith can disagree about these things, but it's something that, and I know that they're taking it very seriously, but it's something I take very seriously too. Through the years, I've been probably the, probably been the, one of the label people in the country who has been the most, they've had the most faith in the streaming. Because I remember in 2012, when things came out, everybody was like, Spotify, boo, they don't pay, they pay, they pay whatever, half a cent a, a stream, that's bullshit. And, but I, I looked at Sweden at the time, because honestly, again, like it's my duty when I'm being of service to my artists to figure out 
what's really going on. So there's all this talk about Spotify and should people do it? Should they not do it? And the economics seem crazy. And so I decided to do a, a, a deep dive and I actually got on the phone. And at this point, when Spotify was launching over here, Spotify had already scaled to the point where it was responsible for 85% of the music business revenues in Sweden at that time. They're a Swedish company. Mm -hmm. they, they built their first. And so I felt, wow, will they become like the dominant way that people consume music in Sweden. So what is the what has been the end result of in terms of revenues into the music industry? And the music industry grew precipitously during the time that that the streaming was scaling. And I thought about it too because I remember one time, I think it was like 2003 or 2004 around then, I went to a they used to have a convention called NARM that was the National Association of Record Merchandisers and it was basically the record retail convention. And they did a, a massive survey. And what they did was they asked all people, granted the methodology was probably not super tight, but they would ask people, do you consider yourself an avid music consumer? And for all the people that self-identified as avid music consumers, what they did was they, and it was a pretty large pool of people, but they did a study on, okay, what are their buying patterns, all this kind of stuff. But one of the questions was how much money on average do people who consider themselves avid music consumers spend a year on music. And the answer wound up being about $60, it's about five CDs or whatever was on the average. And, and I thought about that. And it's like, honestly, the number I thought, I thought it might be a little bit higher, probably because I'm just looking at my own consumption, how much I spend on music, but that was what they came out with. And then you think about the streaming model for, for the subscription you know, model, you're talking about people who are spending $10 a month. So then the average consumer is spending $120 a month, essentially. And so it makes sense that if somebody's going to go from 60 to 120, as it goes from more of a transactional type of relationship into the streaming relationship, that revenues are going to grow because the gross revenues that are going into the system are growing. And so it happened in Sweden, and that's what's happening right now. As Spotify you know, launched here in 2011, but really didn't kind of get fully going until maybe 2020. 13, 2014. And in 2014 was the year that we hit our absolute rock bottom as an industry. We did less than $7 billion in terms of retail value for the music business, down from $14 billion in 1999. So the business basically halved. And, and so when streaming came along, then all of a sudden we started seeing those revenues go up. And as of 2020, the RAAA hasn't done the, they haven't done the numbers for 2021 yet, but the numbers for 2020, it was 12.2 billion. So from 2014 to 2020, the business grew 75%. And that's huge. And it's a bigger pool of money for, for potentially everybody. Now, the rub is that with the advent of digital delivery, things like TuneCore, where nobody would ever want to hear an album of me singing, but suppose I got a wild hair up my ass and decided that I wanted to do it. I could make a record here in my, in my office and load it up to TuneCore and it would be in the market. Now it wouldn't do very well, but you get my, my point. 
the barrier to access to get to be on those platforms is radically different than it was back in 2004, for instance, where you had to get signed to a label in order to have records made, get them into stores, promoting them through radio or whatever. But like you had to sign a label deal or you were pretty much dead in the water. I think the only exception to that was John Prine and Ani DeFranco. They started their own labels, but even then they had relationships with, with, prominent distributors and, and and everything, but it restricted the access. And it also forced artists to do deals where they were basically beholden to the labels. They didn't have any other options. And it was just a matter of who is it that I'm going to get that's going to fuck me the least. Again, like I don't fault the label, the major label deal. As, everybody, as long as everybody knows what the deal is going in, and, and artists, like even though certain artists may not make quite as much on their recordings if they're in a traditional deal, but if it allows them to tour and make revenue or the songs that they write get on the radio so they're able to earn publishing income. Not everything is needs to be thought of strictly in terms of how much value are you going to wring out of your, your recordings. But the democratization that happened through TuneCore and through Spotify, and frankly, I think even within the last couple of years, Spotify, it's, it's a real sort of double-edged sword because Spotify... And I'm saying Spotify just because they're the hot thing. This applies yeah. to all DSPs, but but it's democratized to the point where I think in last year, Spotify in their whatever, their town hall thing, talked about the fact that they have 60,000 songs a day that get uploaded. So go back to, again, back go back to 2004-ish when I was going to those NARM meetings. They, th- at that time, there were about 50,000 albums coming out. Uh, uh, a year. So if you do the math, and let's just say that just in terms of just like the business equivalent, that 60,000 songs a day equates to about, from an economic standpoint, it's the equivalent of 6,000 albums being released every day. And that, if you extrapolate that out to 365 days a year, you're talking about at that point, over 2 million albums worth of material Mm. that's being uploaded. Now, that number is also a worldwide number. You know, the U.S. It is about you know fifty percent of the global market, and so maybe it's more like one million albums. But you're still talking about one million albums worth of material relevant to the U.S. market versus fifty thousand titles that in two thousand four. And the amount of money that was made in two thousand four and the amount of money that was made in twenty twenty are almost exactly the same. It was about $12.2 billion in revenue. So what is happening is that the pie is getting cut so thin today for artists that that they, to, to extend the analogy, they're getting such a small piece of the pie that they leave the table hungry. And it's really hard to earn a living. And I have an immense sympathy for that. But is it is it worth so if you dismantle the the streaming platforms and there's people that there's varying degrees of how people want to remedy the system but if you, if you take a look at the system again you've had a huge increase in revenues over the last 6 years because of streaming you've had immense democratization in terms of people being able to to have access i looked at the new boots playlist on spotify and i looked at the labels for all of those artists and 20 of the artists on there the copyright information was just their name. It was just them putting it up. But New Boots has 800,000 listeners that, that listen to that. It's a very big popular thing. And 20 acts who are just like 
people that are just doing their own thing. There's no label affiliation. I think these are just people uploading their music and Spotify, and it's good music and Spotify is picking it, which is like very democratic. And so what concerns me is that in the frustration of not getting enough pie and not earning a living, that they misdiagnose the problem and that they are taking something that gives a multitude of artists at least a shot to scale to get in there and to scale. And I think about a country artist that we work with named Russell Dickerson before we ever signed him. And we signed him to the, we did also have a, a joint venture label that we're a part of in the commercial country vein. And Russell's very much a commercial country artist. He, in addition to his music being great, he also had 25 million streams on Spotify before we were ever on the scene. And so he basically delivered proof of concept. He was able to get on those playlists and the music performed there. And so we had a pretty good idea that like this shit might work. And, and if it were 2004, he would have never had a chance. He would have had to have come through a gatekeeper. There's a finite number of things. There are only so many artists that got signed, but nobody could tell Russell no. And he and his team, who's got a great management team, he and his team got out there and hustled and worked and built something that eventually, and they decided that the deal that we offered them was the thing to do. And he's had four number one hits now. He's making you know, money as a publisher. He's out touring. Like He's got a career. He's doing it. He's very successful. And believe me, that, that doesn't happen all the time. But the thing is, you have a chance. Nobody could tell them no. And they got out there. And, and we all know like a bunch of artists that have started out, Chance the Rapper through SoundCloud. Like Basically, nobody was in a position to tell him no or his team no. And they went and built one of the most successful careers that they are. If it weren't for the streaming ecosystem and especially the through TuneCore and the DSPs and, the, and their support. And Spotify is not the only one that supports it. Apple does a great job. Tidal does a great job. Like they all do their part. And it, it just feels like the more that we chip away at that ecosystem without really an idea about how we're going to replace it. All they know is that they're hungry. All they know is they can't make a living. And that's a serious issue. But what I, I would counsel artists to do is get into the weeds and understand the dynamic. And, and put it this way, I, I have a pretty, I've thought a lot about it. I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't think I am. I'm not immune to, to people challenging my notions about it, but I, I feel like so much of the conversation just stops it. I can't make a living or artists can't make a living and artists deserve to make a living. Therefore, they're just not getting paid enough. And I'll be honest, like one of the things about the Joe Rogan, you've seen it, I've seen it. They're like a hundred million dollars and that could be going to artists. And it's not, not really. They're trying to build a, a separate business vertical and they've made an investment and it may turn out to be a bad one because they're losing a lot of customers right now, but things are always more complex and nuanced than people want to give it credit for. And I feel like a lot of the discussion begins and ends of artists don't make money, you know, money. And it's, it's just the easiest thing in the world to just be like, and it's because of cor corruption or it's because of evil corporatism and all this. And I'm just like, it's like the pie is growing and you've got to figure out if you want to do this, the money is, is there. You just have to like be able to, you know, organize. And also the truth is, is that not everyone's going to make it through just because you're an artist doesn't mean that it's going to work. And, and there seems to be this sense of almost, I think about my business, for instance, there were many times in the first, especially the first eight years where I was like, I don't know if this shit's working, like literally did not make a cent of profit in eight years. And we, it was just 
this the stress of just making sure that we were bringing enough enough revenue to be able to keep everybody employed and move forward. It was surviving. That's what I can say about it. And then in about year nine, shit started to be like, oh, and I think a lot of that had to do with just the industry catching up. But had I failed, it's like nobody was going to subsidize that. And and that's just, unfortunately, that's just the harsh reality of it. And I feel like the more, what I want artists to do is to like really dig in and learn what the fuck is going on with the money. Where are the pennies? Where are the micro payments going? How does all this work? And be open to hearing nuanced arguments like Spotify is not actually the devil. There's some things that they do that I don't care for. Right now, they're, they're stiff-arming the publishing community on paying a, a percentage that was mandated by the Copyright Royalty Board that they and the other DSPs have had under appeal for, for three years. The fact that songwriters are getting basically two-thirds of what they should be getting through those platforms because it's been under appeal during a pandemic, no less, that does not sit well with me. I, I, I definitely don't feel like I'm an, an utter apologist for Spotify. I, I can see, you know, what, but if artists are going to make it through, if you don't actually know the battle you're fighting, if you don't understand the terrain that you're dealing with, both the pros and cons, and really dig in and become an apt student, then you're, it's, it, it's hard to win a war if you don't even know what battle you're fighting. And I feel like the battle that a lot of people are fighting out there is evil corporatism and they're fucking their artists. And it's just, that just hasn't been my experience. Well, one thing I do want to say too about the rates is, and this is, and, and again, this is a, a disagreement people can have in good faith, but I feel like it's incumbent on per people because I see this shit on social media all the time about, well, Apple pays this and Tidal pays this and Spotify pays this. Spotify does pay in fact, less than Apple and Tidal. But there's a, how valid of a reason you think it is, is up to you. But I think it's a valid reason. They offer a free ad-supported tier for, for listeners who are not able to pay the $10 a month or choose not to. The ad-supported side brings in a lot less revenue than the subscription side does. So it, it has the, so they're paying in the same percentages as the other DSPs. Spotify, actually, Indie retail, Spotify, Apple, and Tidal are all between 60 and 70% of all the revenues to the recording community. The difference between Spotify and Apple and Tidal is that Spotify brings in less revenue to split up per consumer because of the things that they do. They offer a $5 uh, subscription fee to college students. They offer the ad-supported thing so that lower-income music fans can at least be participating in the economy. And you can make the argument that, you know what, I would rather the lower-income people not have an outlet. We should be subsidizing and paying for that. I feel like I'd rather them be participants in the music economy. And when their situation improves, I'm sure they don't love sitting through ads, when their situation improves, they're likely going to be subscription customers. But in the meantime, they're streaming music. And again, like I can see good faith arguments being made in both ways, but nobody ever talks about why Spotify charges less. And there's a, there's a valid reason they made a decision as a company to offer that where the others decided that they didn't want to. Again, valid choice, but, but it's always painted as like those evil motherfuckers. They're lining their pockets. They're doing this. No, that's not the case. Spotify is actually losing money, maybe even because of Joe Rogan. I don't know, but it's just not as easy as that. And again, like if artists are going to win, 
They need to understand the war that they're fighting. And just, uh, and it's just to just get on social media and just, it's just easy to get a bunch of likes if you're like, boo Spotify, boo corporate America or whatever. And it's just, man, like, it's just more complicated than that. And and again, I, I'm open to, when I make the case, I'm open to people telling me why I'm wrong. I, I have things to learn all the time. I could not be seeing this 100% accurately. But when I ask people, okay, explain to me why if streaming is bad for an ecosystem, why in country after country, when they move to a streaming model, why do revenues soar? And I've yet to have one person tell me, basically answer that question within even like the universe of, of like satisfaction. And it's, you've got to answer that question if you are going to make a critique on the streaming environment. I, I wish I could even offer a counterpoint, but I'm pretty much with you. I am with you 100% there. It, yeah. It may not be the answer most people want to hear. And I think that's why you get the pitchforks. Oh, I'm definitely going to get the shit kicked out of me. I'm going to undoubtedly have some people coming after me. Look, I love the dialogue and sometimes I get a little feisty or whatever. Like we're all trying to figure this out together. Yep. And I think that the the presupposition that basically like the industry is there to fuck you. The label, Spotify, everybody's there to fuck you. And and artists, it's just grist for our collective mill. It's man. Like if you fuck people over, like you're gonna, you're not gonna do business with people after a while. Almost all the shit bags that I know in the business have found their way out because you know what? After a while, people don't trust you. People don't like you. Yeah. And this just distrust of the industry. Like I said, I know tons of people in this industry, and the vast majority of them are really good people who really want everyone to win. And I hate thinking that artists who are trying to get going are buying into the you know, idea that like everyone's trying to fuck them over and it's just, they're just, they're going to be scared to access certain things that could, you know, help them have a career. And that's what, I just don't want people to cut themselves off from that. And again, I'm open to critiques about why I'm wrong and I'm certain that I'll get them. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. All, all good insight here, David. Thank you for taking the time to speak with no, us. Thanks again for having me and I uh, hope to see you around sometime soon. Absolutely, man. And there you have it. Thanks again to David for taking the time to speak with us. We'd been looking to get him on the show for a while, so we're both super pumped that we we're finally able to pick his brain. As always, I'll share pertinent links in the episode notes for you guys to further explore. But in particular, I would direct you all to the article in Rolling Stone that David mentioned. Uh, definitely worth checking out. And we'd love to hear your points and counterpoints so feel free to hit rachel or myself up we are not hard to find as always please consider liking and subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already leave us a review where you can also consider signing up for our newsletter which you can find at sweetheartpub.com this episode and music were produced by me frank keith and i believe that about wraps it up until next time folks Go do something useful.